listening to Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. All right, good morning. How are we? Good to see you. My name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors here. Happy Easter. He is risen. There's an empty tomb in Jerusalem. And Christ is on the throne even now, interceding for us. So it is such a joy to see you. You guys look, uh, as Reynolds mentioned, particularly good and bright this morning. I don't know what it is, but uh, you, you, there was a run on the Easter colors in the stores at Kohl's or Walmart or wherever you shop. All right, we, we good to go? All right, well, listen, <laughs> open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. I don't know if that's... Uh, a sign from heaven that this is going to be a wonderful Sunday? I, I think it is. Let's go. We have been working our way through the Gospel of Mark, but we're going to take a break out of the Gospel of Mark, and, and on this Resurrection Sunday where we are baptizing uh, three folks at the end of uh, the service today, we're going to look specifically at the good news, the, the Gospel, what it means to be a Christian why all this talk about sin and salvation and the importance of the resurrection. And so we're going to look specifically at that today in 10 verses out of the, the letter to Ephesians, which I think is probably the, the most compact and thorough and complete sort of summary of the gospel maybe in the whole Bible. It's a sort of mini Bible within the Bible in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10. And if, you're, if you don't have a Bible, I'd love for you to follow along with us. And you can use the Bible that's in the chair uh, in front of you. There's some racks every other chair, and there's a Bible there. And I'd love for you to use that Bible. You can find that if you're not looking, used to looking up verses in, in the Bible. You can find Ephesians chapter 2 on page 976. It's in the New Testament. It's one of Paul's letters to a church in Ephesus, a church that was very likely much smaller than the than this church, than much smaller group of people than are in this room even now. And so Paul writes this letter uh, to these people, and we're going to look at just a, a few verses from Ephesians chapter 2. Now, if you weren't here last week, I, re- I really, is that me? Am I doing something wrong? How do we rectify this situation? <laughs> do I just not move? Okay, I'll just not move. Um, I'm sorry. Um, so if you, if you missed last week, um, I would, and it's it's plugged in. Um, maybe I should just use a handheld microphone. All right, I'll do that. Let me go over here and get this one. Hi, my name's Brad, and I'm one of the pastors here at Crosspoint. <laughs> I'm so glad that you're here today. Now listen, I, um, this is going to be good because I um, come from Italian descent and my father was a football coach and so I speak with my hands and so I'm going to have one hand tied behind my back or hand holding the microphone today. So this is going to be interesting how this is going to go. But we're going to, um, if you missed last week, that's where I was, if you missed last week, Robert Ward preached through uh, uh, the transfiguration from Mark chapter 9 verses 2 through 13. Uh, just a beautiful, excellent message, and I encourage you to, to pick up that. We've got CDs of it on the, the information desk. And then next week, we'll be working our way back through um, the rest of Mark chapter 9, and so I'd encourage you to come to that. 
Well, let me read in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and then, uh, then I'll pray. I think this passage uh, could be outlined in, in three ways. There's, there's three things that I, I see in these ten verses. There's a, a dilemma, really the dilemma of all mankind, the dilemma of sin. And then there's the solution of the gospel, the solution of the good news. And then there's the purpose behind it all. So we're going to see a dilemma, we're going to see a solution, and we're going to see the purpose behind it all. Let me read in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Listen to these words. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Well, pray with me and ask the Lord to help us understand these words. Father, we come to you now thanking you for the grace that you have given us in even recording your holy word for us. It's not just morality or principles for how to live better. It is your authoritative, completely true and sufficient word that points us to Jesus and what you have done to reconcile your people to yourself through your son's work on the cross, through his perfect life and sacrificial death and glorious resurrection that we come to celebrate today. So we come, Lord, as distracted people, as wounded people, as, as busy people, as confused people, and we come and humble ourselves underneath your holy word. And Lord, I pray for those of us that are in this room that are trusting in Jesus on this Resurrection Day, that, Lord, as we hear the words of this faithful gospel, this good news of what you have done for us, that it would stir our hearts afresh with love so that we might worship you more passionately. And, Lord, for those that are in this room, and surely there are some, in fact, maybe many that are in this room who have not yet trusted in you, 
They may still be trusting in themselves or some religious effort, or they may be consciously not trusting in Jesus. Lord, whatever the case, would you, by your kindness, give ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart to believe and trust in Jesus and his work. Lord, I pray that you would do these things for the glory of your name and for the joy of your people. I pray it in that that sweet name of Jesus. Amen. We see in the beginning of this passage this dilemma of mankind that we are all, we're fallen. I read yesterday this article by this British author. I confessed a few weeks ago my love for all things British. I I don't regularly read British newspapers, but I just came across, across this one on the on my Google machine the other day. It was, uh, it was linked from a blog, and so I read this article by a, a man named Michael McCarthy in the British newspaper, The Independent. Uh, Michael McCarthy has been their environmental editor, and he is a staunch environmentalist, and I'm not making any political statements. I think I would drastically disagree with where Michael McCarthy is politically and his views of, of, of just social issues. But he, he entitles this article, in fact, it's his last article. He's retiring as the editor for the environmental section of the paper um, this upcoming week. And he entitles his article, Man is Fallen and Will Destroy the Earth. And he has arrived at this, really, this paradigm shift for himself after years and years and years of being a secular humanist and writing for environmental issues for this paper. And the point that he's making is is that he has believed, and I think to some degree still holds out this hope, that mankind, at least in the ideology that he professes and secular humanism, is that mankind is basically good and that he will do his best to improve things, whether it's government or, in his case, the environment and to take care of it and steward it well. But after spending all of these decades being the editor and thinking about these issues, he's come to the conclusion that mankind is a very poor steward of the environment and is, in fact, destroying the earth through, you know, cars and all sorts of other things and industrialization. And so he has come to the conclusion that man is fallen. And, in fact, in his article, he actually alludes to the fact that, that he's writing this on this, this Easter weekend where... Christians hold out this hope, in fact, would agree with him that, yes, man has fallen, but they would hold out for this this redemption in Jesus. Now, I do not agree politically. I think Christians should be good stewards of the environment. This has nothing to do with environmentalism. If you want me to talk about that and you're disappointed in the turn that I'm about to take, please don't email. email me. This is not about environmentalism or politics. This is about what I think is a recognition from a man who is clearly not a believer in Jesus or Christianity or the Bible, that he is realizing that his paradigm has really been turned upside down and that, in fact, man is fallen. That there's something that is wrong and we all instinctively realize it. And that's what these verses that we've read in this passage tell us. It says in verse 1 that we are dead in our trespasses in which we once walked, that we follow the course of this world. 
And we live according to the passions of our flesh before we come to Jesus. And we carry out these desires of the body and the mind. And that we are by nature children of wrath. I want to take just a moment to sort of think deeply about this dilemma that mankind is, is fallen. That something is wrong and that all of us, whether we're Christians or not, instinctively realize that. Have you taken the time to consider the implications of this truth that I think all of us would, would agree with, that man is fallen, that something is wrong, and we all realize it? If you're a Christian, have you noticed the incredibly stark language that the Bible uses in reference to what God has done for you, to save you from this fallenness. Listen to, these, listen to these words in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. It says that He, meaning God the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. There's this stark language that we were prisoners to this dark kingdom, prisoners to sin, prisoner to this prince of the power of of the air, and God has snatched us from that and transferred us into His kingdom. Listen to Romans chapter 5, and I'm speaking to you if you're a Christian about considering the starkness of the language of the Bible, of the implications of that we are fallen and that God has rescued us from this state. Listen to Paul's words in Romans 5. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 9, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while if we were, we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Notice the stark language there. We were enemies of God. He has reconciled us. He's saved us from the wrath of a just and holy God who was ready to pour out his wrath on us. If we remained outside of Christ, does this describe your relationship with God, this reality, this understanding of the starkness of the of the just the strength of what God has done for you? Or are you like much of I think American Christianity which unwittingly and maybe even wittingly in some cases positions Christianity as just a sort of upgrade as a competing worldview like a life 2.0 the latest version of the software come to church do this apply these principles to your life be a little better and then things will go better for you Christian bookstores are full of books that teach this sort of veiled moralism Add God to your sort of mediocre life, and then things will improve. Do you, do you realize, if, if you're a Christian, that is not the message of the Bible. It, it, the message of the Bible is that we were fallen, we were prisoners to our own flesh, to sin, to the prince of the power of the air, which is our enemy, and that we have been snatched from this dark kingdom and transferred into the kingdom of 
his son Jesus whom he loves. If you're, if you're not a Christian, have you considered the implications of, I think, this fact that we would all agree on, that we are fallen, that things are not as they should be? Now, you, I, I realize, I want to be respectful to where you are right now. You may say, well, I, I agree with that, but I don't believe what the Bible says about why that is or that there's some sort of salvation. But can I just ask you to, to think about your presuppositions, about your premise if, in fact, we are fallen, if things aren't the way they should be, how do we know that? Like, against what standard are we judging? If things have fallen, there's a standard that we had to fall from, right? So where does this, this sort of standard, this intangible aspect of reason that we all sort of wonder, well, we've fallen from that. Where, where does that sense of rightness or morality come from? Does your worldview have an answer to that? Well, the Bible does have a very clear answer to that, and the clear answer to that is that we have all, in some way or another, whether we are good little church kids that have been attending church since we were out of the nursery at the hospital, or whether we are obvious public sinners, we are all, in some way, fallen and rebel against God. And the Bible is clear that the only way we can be made right with God is through Jesus' perfect life, not our own. Do you see the consequences that we just read in, of this fallenness? That we, we seem to be sort of caught up in this riptide. We seem to be, you know, in this flow that we can't get out of. It says that we were dead in our trespasses. Verse 3 says that we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And some of you may object and say, well, Brad, what about people that are just kind of basically good? You know, what about just some sort of general morality? Are they really objects of wrath? They're not doing bad stuff. I mean, come on, there's, there's maybe some... Some bad that they do, but on the great spectrum of things, I mean, is God really going to be the type of person who punishes or, or comes after with his wrath and judgment, just basically good people? Well, let me challenge again your notion of goodness. Okay, so let's just come up with a guy who uh, grows up, his parents give birth to him. Actually, more specifically, his mother gives birth to him, lest I get talked to this afternoon about the whole process of birth. I had nothing to do with the... Oh, wait a minute, I did have something to do, but I, wasn't, I didn't actually give birth to any of my children. So let's just say that these parents have a child, and they raise him well. They give him a good home to live in. They give him an education. They give him food and clothing. And then at 18, this child leaves home, kisses his mom in the driveway, drives away to college, goes through college successfully, gets a great job as you know, just some successful businessman and then lives his life. But from the moment he leaves the driveway when he kissed his mom goodbye and went off to college, he never acknowledges his parents again. But he lives a, a wonderfully moral life. Like he, he lives a good life. He doesn't commit any crimes. He gives to charity. And, you know, he's a basically good citizen. And he contributes. He pays his taxes, you know. He, he, does, he, he does all that. 
But every time his parents try to call him, he, do, he doesn't accept their calls. And so from the time from 18 all the way through adulthood, he rejects communication from his parents. Yes, in some sense, he's lived a decent life according to society, but he has completely stopped acknowledging his parents who were so good to him to nurture him and to give him life. Would any of us think that that guy is good? No. We would want to smack that joker and say, call your mama. You stinker. So so morality only finds its goodness in as much as it is tethered to the one who gives morality. Do you see that? Morality is not a, a standalone sort of thing. It only finds its worth because it is a given morality. It's a created morality. It's a created righteousness And it is only truly good so long as it is tethered to the one who gave it and created it. So do you see that really there is no goodness, there is no morality, there is no rightness apart from acknowledging the one who gave us life. Have you considered that? And have you considered how all of us have rejected that. We are in a dilemma. And the dilemma is that we are fallen because we've all rebelled in some way or another. And this sin has made us just recipients of God's judgment. And there is nothing we can do to repair the breach. The scripture there in verse 1 says that we're dead. It doesn't mean that we are physically dead, although we will eventually die because our sins, at least die physically, but we are spiritually unable. There's nothing that we can do to make ourselves right. There's no amount of good works that we can do to make up for our rebellion. But thankfully, the story does not end there. It continues in verse 4 with two of the sweetest words in the entire Bible. So let's read verse 4. After painting this stark picture of the dilemma of mankind, Paul continues with the solution of the gospel. Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. In other words, he brought us back to life. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So I I want us to take a moment here to think about the solution of what God has done to, to solve, to cure the dilemma. To solve the dilemma, God enters into human history in the person of Jesus. It's really important that we, that, we, that we get this because around Easter time, there's all of these you know, stories on, there's all of these specials on the geographic channels and all these about this, this historical figure, Jesus. Jesus does not emerge from history. He is God who enters history from outside of it. Jesus is not just a man, but he's also God. Let me read some scriptures for you that that point to this very clearly. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, the beginning of John's gospel. It says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word 
was God. This is speaking of Jesus. This is a Greek, uh, this is is a, a letter written primarily to the Greek mindset, speaking about this word of God, Jesus, that has been made flesh, and that he's not just created, he's not, he wasn't created by God, he is God. Verse two, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So, so very clearly, just a plain reading of the text would tell us that Jesus is not just a man who emerged 2,000 years ago, but he is the pre-eternal, pre-existent second person of the Trinity, God in the flesh. Listen to Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. Listen to these words about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. Now, when it says firstborn there, it doesn't mean that Jesus was was literally created, but that original language of that word firstborn that we translate as, as, as the word firstborn here means more not of the fact that Jesus was created because he wasn't. He's been eternally preexistent with God. But it has to do with his order, his preeminence, his position amongst mankind as the firstborn. The first son, verse 16, for by him, meaning Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. So Jesus is more than just a man that emerges from history. He's God that enters history from outside. One more verse to to just tune our hearts into this idea that Jesus is God. Hebrews 1 verse 3. Robert read this verse last week. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is God. Why is it important for us to understand that Jesus is God? Because we're getting to this point here of what is the solution that God has has given for the dilemma. So why is it important for us to understand that Jesus is God? Because the story of the gospel, which we'll unfold here more thoroughly in just a second, is that God comes to mankind in their dilemma. And he takes on the form of mankind. He takes on the likeness of sinful flesh and he lives a perfect life in the flesh. So where, where, where we have all rebelled, Jesus, God in the flesh, completely obeys and satisfies the law that we heard Reynolds lead us in, this law that we have all transgressed in deed, in thought. Jesus completely obeys that, li- that law and lays down his perfect life on the cross as a sacrifice. But it's important to realize that on the cross is not just a mere man, but God himself dying for his people. Why is it important for us to understand that Jesus is God? Because our rebellion against an eternal and infinitely holy God deserves an infinite punishment. And there's no amount of humans, there's no amount of mere human righteousness that can atone for the eternal holiness of God that has been transgressed. And so Jesus comes not just as man, but as God, and he satisfies the Father's justice like only he can because he is also God. But God doesn't just solve the dilemma from afar. He comes to us in Christ becoming 
like us. Let me read to you from Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. Don't flip there. We'll have it on the screen. Listen to these words about the solution, what God has done in Christ. Hebrews 2, verse 10. For it was fitting that he, speaking of God, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation, meaning Jesus, perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies, meaning God, Jesus, and those who are sanctified all have one origin. So Jesus has come, God in the flesh, he's taken on flesh, and he's lived a perfect life, and now he lays down that life on the cross, and he satisfies God's justice that should have been ours. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Praise, And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Verse 14. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, meaning Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So, so friends, let's stop here. This is, this is mind-blowing. Okay, now, it, I get asked this question. In fact, I ask this question every now and again. Couldn't God, to s- solve the dilemma of mankind's fallenness, I mean, if, are you tracking with me so far that we're all fallen, that we, we need a Savior? Well, couldn't God have just sort of stayed up there in heaven, shook his head, given us a little, you shouldn't have, oh my, creation, the flood didn't work, try to get your attention in Genesis 6 with Noah, I tell you what, let me just sprinkle a little God dust over this thing and sort of make everything okay, Could, could God have done that, could he have just sort of snapped his fingers and eradicated everything and made it okay, well, I, I guess, yeah, he could have done this. He could have done it like that, but, but he, he clearly didn't do it that way. Why? Because God in love is more than just a, a sort of cosmic deity reigning from above, snapping his fingers, demanding obedience. He sympathizes with his creation that has fallen, and he comes to them in the form of Jesus, his son, and he takes on the same flesh that they have. He endures everything that they have. Where we have fallen, Jesus has succeeded. He is tempted in every way as we are and comes and identifies with his people and then submits himself to their greatest enemy, death. And then lays down his life and dies and then comes back from the grave defeating death. And all of its consequences. So so God gives us a solution to the dilemma, not by from afar snapping his fingers, but by coming to us and identifying with his people in love. And taking on the same flesh that we have. And enduring everything that we've endured. And succeeding perfectly. And laying down his life on the cross. And so how does God then save people? 
He does it through taking this good news of what we've, we've just been talking about. This good news of God becoming a man, living a perfect life, submitting himself to our greatest enemy, and defeating it through letting it seemingly triumph over him, but then coming back from the grave, rising from the dead, defeating death, triumphing over it, as Colossians chapter 2 says. God takes this news, this fact of God becoming man, living a perfect life, laying down that perfect life to absorb God's justice, to absorb the penalty that should have been ours, satisfying it, extinguishing it, removing it, and then rising again in victory over the consequences of our sin, which is death, defeating it, and now giving life to all who will turn and trust in him. How then does God actually make us into Christians? Well, well, we read it in in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5. Let's read it again. It says, even while we were dead in our trespasses, God makes us alive together with Christ. So we are dead. We're in a ditch. We're fallen. And when God intends to save a person, he comes upon them and he makes them alive. He breathes life through the preaching, the speaking, the communicating of these facts that we've just been talking about today. He gives us eyes to see, ears to hear, a heart to believe, not in ourselves, not in our relative morality, but in Jesus. He makes us alive, gives us faith so that we can trust in Jesus and brings us back to life so that we can breathe and trust in him. This is what the Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, verse 3. says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So how does God make people Christians? By His kindness and love, He comes to you. When your heart is dead, and he moves upon your heart, and he makes you alive, and he gives you faith in him so that you can get up from your spiritual grave and look to Jesus. Friends, do you notice the order of what I just said there? Do you notice the important implications there? The good news of the gospel, becoming a Christian is not a matter of mustering faith. It's not a matter of you got to come to the table with something that God will accept. No, that's not the gospel, friends. We're dead. We're fallen. We're completely unable. We're following the course of this world. We're not looking for God. We're unattached from Him. We're separated from Him. And when God saves a person, He comes upon them. He causes the gospel to be heard by them. He gives them life so that the first breath they take is faith. Faith is a result of being born again. It's not something that you have to bring to the table so that you'll be born again. And friends, do you see the good news in this? That it's all of grace. It's all of grace. When God saves you, He gives you the very thing that He requires from you. So do you hear those words? 
Do you hear? Are you, have you, did you come into this room maybe not trusting in Jesus, wondering whether or not you had faith? Friends, the good news of the gospel is that you're not saved by what you can muster. You are saved by God's grace who gives you life and then gives you faith so that you can turn and trust in Jesus. You're not saved by whether or not you're strong enough or good enough or whether or not you have enough faith. You're saved by the object of your faith who is Jesus. So are you hearing those words? Did you maybe come into this room not yet a Christian and wondering what it takes to become a Christian? What it takes to become a Christian is the very thing that we're celebrating today, a resurrection. And the good but humbling news is is that your only hope is in God who resurrects. Do you hear the words of the gospel? That very well may be evidence that God is giving you belief. He's giving you faith. He's giving you repentance. He's giving you a heart. He's bringing you to life so that you can look to... What do you do now? Look to Jesus. Look away from trusting in yourself. Look away from morality. Look away from self-righteousness. And look to Jesus. To him who has ears to hear this. Hear it now. Look to Jesus. Who alone gives life. And that brings us to the, to the final thought. We've looked at the dilemma. We looked at the solution. And now the purpose, the glorious purpose behind this all. We asked this question a little bit earlier. Okay, I get you, Brad. Things, things have gone horribly wrong. The only hope is in God. God saves his people by bringing them back to life through the gospel, whether it's somebody preaching it or somebody sharing it or maybe reading it, but you have to hear that good news. You have to understand what Jesus has done to bear our penalty and defeat death by rising again. Okay, I get that, and God makes us alive. There's, it's incredibly humbling, but there's great hope in that, so God does it, not me. Okay, I get that, but couldn't, couldn't God have done this all differently again? Why, why did God even allow sin and the fall? I mean, let alone, why did God, in love and compassion, deem it necessary to enter into human history, which he could have just fixed from afar? But, but why did God even allow fall, sin, evil? I think that's a good question. That's a legitimate question. And one that if you, you wrestle with, you, you, I think that's a legitimate thing for you to wrestle with. And I think we get pointed towards the answer in verse 7 of the text that we read in Ephesians chapter 2. So let me read verse 7 again. Okay, so it says that God is rich in mercy. He raised us. He made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up with him, seated us with him in heavenly places. So that's just a, a sort of summary of the gospel. God, okay, we're fallen. God has come to us. He makes us alive. He gives us faith as a gift so that no one can boast. He, he resurrects us just as he resurrected Jesus. Verse 7, why? Why? So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So, so, so there's a clue right there in verse 7 that the reason why things are the way they are 
is because God in his glory and his grace allows them to be so because he has deemed it the way that he can most magnify the display of his glory and greatness, which, oh, by the way, is the most loving and best thing that he can do for his creation is to display his splendor. Think about it this way. I mean, every young guy in this room that's ever bought an engagement ring, I did it 20 years ago. A young guy that's a young lieutenant here in this church just bought an engagement ring recently, plastered all over Facebook. Um, I'm glad that we didn't have Facebook when I bought my maybe less than large diamond for my wife. (laughs) Anyway, sorry, baby. Maybe one of these days we can save up enough to get you a legitimate rock. But there's no, there's, I shouldn't have said all that. I, I, I love your, your ring, baby. It's, it's awesome. But there's, there's no jeweler in Columbus, Georgia, that if he sees some young lieutenant or young man or young soldier, this young guy, walking nervously into his jewelry shop. Hey, uh, can I see your engagement rings? Can I see your diamonds? There's not a jeweler in Columbus, Georgia that will put that diamond down against the backdrop of a bunch of other diamonds. There's no jeweler in Columbus, Georgia that will put that diamond down on top of a glass shelf. Now, what does the jeweler do? Takes that box out, gets that little Leather, that black velvet swath, lays that bad boy down and puts that diamond on top of the black velvet so that the diamond pops all the more. And friends, I think verse 7 is pointing us towards that on a cosmic, universal, redemptive backdrop. That God has allowed evil and sin and fallenness so that he might greater display the beauty of the diamond of his grace against the backdrop of fallenness. Now we could, we could say, whoa, 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 that seems really self-centered and egotistical of God. Friends, do you realize that, that the only person in the universe who is good when he's being self-centered is God because God is so good and glorious that when he magnifies himself, it is the most loving thing of all, the most loving thing that he can do. And so God allows everything to happen and superintends it for his glory so that he can reach into the ditch and display the immeasurable riches of his grace in Christ. And so that tells me something, friends, because that tells me that this world is broken and fallen and it is sad. But listen to this verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 through 18. It tells me how glorious heaven and eternal life with Jesus must be. Listen to this, verse 16. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. Verse 17, for this light and momentary affliction, this, this world that is broken... 
this, this life that is still racked with guilt, the, the trials that we still face even after coming to Jesus for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So friends, if God is, is shining His glory through even allowing evil so that He could save His people out of it, how, must, how glorious must heaven and eternity with Jesus be? That, that in comparison to the, the worst evil of this world, it's just a mere light and momentary affliction compared to the glory of God's grace in Christ Jesus. There's the dilemma we're all fallen. And there's only one solution that the Bible offers, and it's to trust in Jesus, to be completely dependent on Him for His grace. And there's a glorious purpose behind it all so that God might emanate, might shine, might fill the universe with his glory by saving his people through Jesus' work on the cross. Has that, do you see that? Has that consumed your life? Is that why you live? Does that describe your Christianity. If it doesn't, Christian, let your heart be stirred beyond just a cultural celebration. Let your heart be humbled and stirred and gaze at the beautiful, glorious diamond of the risen King Jesus and fall deeper in love with him and let it cause you to worship him more profoundly so that your soul might be satisfied in Him and not in this world. Did you come into this room not a Christian? I'm not asking you to have all of your answers nailed down and all of your, your, all of your questions answered. I'm asking you, can you see the diamond of the glory of the risen King? Can you acknowledge that things are not as they should be? Can you look, can you see Jesus? Trust in him. Believe in him even now. Turn from trusting in yourself and trust in Jesus alone. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Fathers, we come now to continue our worship by seeing this gospel displayed through the baptism of a brother and two sisters that are part of this church, I pray, Lord, that you would stir the affections of Christians in this room to see Jesus, to worship him, to be humbled by his glory, and to realize that everything in this world, every disease, every sin, every War, every famine, everything somehow or another eventually in eternity will find its place to point towards your greatness. And that day, Lord, will be a day when everything will completely and totally make sense because it will all, all of it, will point towards the glory and the grace of the God who became man and defeated death for his people. Lord, let that picture, let that 
longing for eternity stir our hearts and let it help us unclench our hands from this world and all of its counterfeit gods. And Lord, for the friend that came into this room not trusting in you, Lord, would you give them a heart to believe and eyes to see, ears to hear. Would you give them a new heart so that they can believe in Jesus and look to him and see him and take joy in him and delight in him. Lord, would you do that? And would we rejoice with our friends as they are baptized as a proclamation of their faith in Jesus and their uniting with his body, the church. I pray these things for your glory and for the good and joy of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, let's all stand as we worship together. And if you're being baptized, you can now make your way back. And after the song, we'll see these friends be baptized.